When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Julie Clark about The Lies I Tell. Julie is the New York Times bestselling author of The Last Flight. It has earned starred reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, and Library Journal, and the New York Times has called it thoroughly absorbing. Her debut, The Ones We Choose, was published in 2018 and has been optioned for television by Lionsgate. She lives in Los Angeles with her two sons and a golden doodle with poor impulse control. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Julie. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here again. It's been a little while, but I'm happy to talk with you again, this time about the lies I tell. Yes, I know. It has been a couple years, I think, right? Yes, you were an early guest when my podcast was very new. So uh, yeah, it's fun to have you back. Thank you. Exciting. Well, let's talk a little bit about The Lies I Tell. Why don't you give me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet? Okay. The Lies I Tell is the story of Meg Williams, who is a con artist traveling the country under assumed names, creating elaborate backstories to back up whatever lies she's telling. After 10 years of perfecting her craft, she returns home to Los Angeles to pull her biggest con yet on the man she believes destroyed her life. What she doesn't know is that someone is in Los Angeles waiting for her to return. It's a woman, and she plans on infiltrating Meg's life, lying about who she is in the hopes of exacting her own revenge. So where did the inspiration come from this story? The whole time I was reading it, I was like, I wonder where she got the ideas. 
You know, I got the idea from listening to a podcast about a con artist in Australia, a man. I think the podcast was something called like, who the hell is Hamish or something like that. And it's about, it was about a man who, you know, convinced women to fall in love with him and he would charm them and they'd fall in love with him within hours, days, weeks, right? And then he would convince them to give him, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars for, you know, can't lose investment opportunities. And I just remember thinking like, first of all, how could they fall for this? And I know that people do, and I understand that people do. And when you love somebody or you're in love with somebody, you want to believe that it's real. And it got me thinking, I'll bet a woman could do this better, right? I think women could be better at this than men because men are inherently, I think, untrustworthy, right? We see them and we're like, "Mm, what's that guy after? Or, you know, oh, he looks a little shady. You know, but but women are, I think, inherently more trustworthy. You know, they're the, when your kids are lost, you tell your kids always, you know, if you ever get lost at Disneyland, you know, find the mom with the kids, right? Find the mom with the stroller and and she'll help you find me. And so I think that I thought a woman could probably lean into a lot of the biases that we still have about women, right? That we're not really as smart as men, not really as capable as men. Um, and so Meg finds men who are powerful and arrogant and they all underestimate her because she's a beautiful woman and she leans into that and takes advantage of that and takes advantage of them. I agree with that completely. But I think the other component is that when men are taking advantage of women, it's often because the woman is lonely and she's wanting someone there with her. At least that's what it seems like to me in a lot of these stories. Mm -hmm. But I think when women are taking advantage of men, it's for many different reasons. And it's so much easier to target these men because while the stereotypes are that women aren't as smart, men will fall for so many more things than I think women will. I think so too, because their ego won't let them be wrong. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just interesting to kind of flip that on its head and then think about how much easier it was for Meg to infiltrate some of these people's lives than it would have been if someone was trying to infiltrate a woman's life. Yes, but also I'd like to point out too that Meg is not just infiltrating any man's life. Right, right. She's very selective in who she chooses. She has reasons for who she chooses. And her ultimate goal is the person who destroyed her childhood, her mother's life, her life, and stole everything from them. So she's got a mission. She's got a plan. She doesn't just decide to be a con artist. Life sort of threw her into that. And then she realized that she was actually quite good at it. Absolutely. I think con artist stories are all the rage. Why do you think that is? Uh, I don't know. I think that people are interested in finding out how, how we can be so gullible, how we can fall for things. And I think that people inherently would like to believe that they never would. But that's actually not true, you know? And there's a statistic that says like something like over 50% of people who are conned never, ever, ever report it because they can't believe that they were conned. They're embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't think there's any shame in it. I mean, that's the problem. And that's why That's why I think people keep doing these things. But con artists go all the way back in time. You know, I mean, the fortune tellers of the, you know, 17th and 18th century are, you know, were the original con artists, you know, tricking people into believing that the spirits were wanting them to do these things and 
hand over their money and hand over their their family home or whatever it is, people have a desire to believe in something. And con artists can recognize what people want and what people need almost to the point of being psychic. And then they promise that. And it's really hard, I think, for people not to want to believe in that. I think that's right. If you can figure out what it is that is preying on this person or weighing on them, I guess is the better phrase, then it is much easier to try to step into their life. And certainly Meg does that quite well. She does. Yeah, she turns it into an art form. Did you have to do any research for this one? I did. I mean, I had to research con artists and kind of figure out their psychology. And then I needed to figure out a way to make Meg a little bit different, right? Because while she is unscrupulous in a lot of the decisions that she makes, I still wanted my reader to be rooting for her. And we can understand, if we can understand sort of where she came from and what she was struggling with and how she came to be a con artist, then I think that it's easier to root for her, right? And so I had to do a lot of research into sort of how con artists think and how they manipulate the world and how they sort of lean into trouble and problems when they arise and craft Meg around that. And I would think setting it in our current world where there is so much technology and the internet, there must have been a lot of those type of little things you really had to make sure you covered your bases on. Yes. I mean, there's a whole real estate scam that threads throughout this book. And so I definitely leaned heavily on a friend of mine, a very dear friend, Allison, who is a real estate agent here in Los Angeles. My mom also was for many, many years a real estate agent. And so when I had questions about, you know, could this happen? Could could somebody do this? Could How does this work? How do these transactions typically work? You know, you have to have a deep understanding of what what it's supposed to look like when it goes well, so that you can then manipulate and change some things to make sure that it could end up happening the way that it does in the book. Absolutely. But there's also her background where she says she spent 10 years in Michigan as a real estate agent, and she had to be able to create that where if someone was going back and checking, she would have a reasonable background created. And there were just a lot of those little things, which I thought you covered very well. I'd be like, oh, I wonder how that can happen these days. And then you worked through it all so that it was very logical and made sense and was believable. Yeah. And those little details also required a lot of research and just kind of thinking through every little, I mean, I kind of guess, I guess I had to sort of become a con artist in my mind, at least a little bit, you know, to think about how I could cross all my T's and dot all my I's and make sure everything was just as locked down as I could make it. And that did take a while. I would certainly think so. The format for this one is similar to the format you used in The Last Flight. You toggle back and forth in time, and then you toggle back and forth between points of views. That obviously works well for you. Do you write them separately? Do you write them as they appear in the book? How does all of that unfold for you? Uh, I kind of write them sequentially. So I start at the beginning, and I write through to the very end and go back and forth between the POVs as I feel is needed. I didn't intend to write another dual timeline POV. And this one is a little bit different than The Last Flight because both of those POVs, like Eva's POV was working toward the day of the crash and Claire's POV was working away from the day of the crash with the day of the crash being the anchor of both POVs. With this one, it's just back and forth in time. So the book opens and we're in Los Angeles 
We're with Kat. She sees Meg. She's back. She's ready to go. And she's wondering what Meg is up to. We go to Meg. We see what Meg is up to. And then we go back in time and sort of spend a little bit of time to see how Meg actually became a con artist. And then we're back in the present again. So the only time we go back in time for this particular book is to learn more about Meg and how she got to be where she is, what happened, and kind of the pivotal moments that placed her back in Los Angeles, back in Kat's path with everything about to happen and the reader arriving just in time. And what happens to Kat as well and why she got to where she is. Right, right, right. Yeah. Will you also have a little nod and Easter egg to your last flight characters? Did you plan to do that always or did you throw that in as you were writing? I threw that in at the end. I didn't plan to do that. And I sort of had a couple for my editor just to read and have fun with. And she loved them all and said, but you have to pick one. (laughs) So I did. Yeah. They can't appear throughout the book. (laughs) Right. Exactly. She's like, this isn't marketing material for the last flight. Let's be, you know, so I, so I just left the one. Well, I loved that. I, I read it and I smiled. Yeah. I also understand that if you buy The Lies I Tell at an indie bookstore, you're going to get an additional chapter for The Last Flight. Is that right? Yes. Um, so, yes, we had talked about possibly writing the alternate ending for The Last Flight for the paperback edition. I had tossed that out there to Sourcebooks, my publisher, and they were just a really phenomenal publishing company. They're very data-driven. They're very, they, they pivot easily. Like when COVID shut the world down, Sourcebooks was kind of ready, almost like they had sort of seen this coming and had a plan for it so that we really didn't miss a step. Whereas, you know, other, other authors were not, were not as fortunate as I was. And so they're always interested in new revolutionary ideas. And so I had said, what if we, what if we wrote the alternate ending for The Last Flight for the paperback edition? Because I had been getting a lot of messages from readers like, I, you know, and I don't want to do any spoilers for people who haven't read The Last Flight yet, but I got a lot of questions about the, about the ending. Some people wanted clarification because they weren't quite sure what they thought happened actually happened. And other people were like, they loved it. It was the perfect ending. And, and, and quite a few people were asking me why I did that. How could I have done that? <laughs> they were sad. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I just remember, you know, thinking, well, what if I did write the alternate ending? How could I even make that happen? And, you know, Sourcebooks was like, ooh, tell us more about this, right? And then it just didn't work out because of I was doing copy edits and page passes for The Lies I Tell. And I just wasn't in the headspace to try to figure it out because it would require a lot of figuring out. And as I thought about it, I realized I would have to take apart a large portion of the last flight and sort of a subplot and take out some things that just, it's sort of, you know, the threads are, are sort of like octopus tentacles and they sort of reach into all different parts of a book. And so when you change one thing at the end, you don't realize that all of those tentacles are embedded in lots of different parts of the book. So we eventually just said, no, we're not going to do that. And then the marketing department contacted me and said, what if we did a pre-order campaign and you wrote the alternate ending as a bonus chapter, separately printed, separately published, and we offered it for people who pre-order the lies I tell to, you know, entice them to, you know, order from a participating independent bookstore. So that's what we did. So I wrote it, I figured it out. It was so much fun to write and to revisit you know, that world and those characters and to figure out how that alternate ending could work. And I actually really love it. So I'm really excited for readers to read it. 
Well, I'm so excited because you and I had talked a little bit about that when we talked about the last flight and the idea that you might have a different ending in your paperback and that it probably then wasn't going to happen. And so when I heard that you were doing this, one, I'm a huge indie bookstore fan. So I love it when there are neat things like that that are only happening for indie bookstores. And then second, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to get it because I'm dying to see this alternate ending for The Last Flight. Yes. And that's the goal. I mean, I really want indie bookstores to get, you know, a ton of business from this if possible. And I think I think our numbers are looking really good for that, at least. And I think it, I think it was, you know, we did a tote bag for the last flight, which was nice. And my mom loved it. My friends loved it. But um, I think, I think this will appeal to a lot of readers. So that's the goal really is to just get readers into bookstores. Absolutely. And that's always a wonderful goal. So Meg's mom had a saying that is prevalent throughout the book. Two women working together are a force to be reckoned with. I loved that. Let's talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I feel really strongly that, you know, I want to put strong, savvy women who don't tear each other down on the page. And that doesn't mean that women always get along. It doesn't mean that women don't have problems with each other. I don't think that's realistic. But I also feel like what I don't want to do is write an evil woman who is intent on taking other women down. That's just not what I want to create. So if there are problems, then there are misunderstandings or there are conflicts, there are disagreements, but there's never one woman who wants to take another woman down. I just don't believe in it. The other thing I really like about your books is that they are sane, non-alcoholic women. Like, I'm just so tired of all of these women that aren't operating with their full faculties and they're always drunk or they're on drugs or there's some other problem. And I just think it's so nice that it's just strong women. Maybe they do have revenge on their minds. They're working towards something, but they're working in their regular state of mind. Yeah, I feel the same way. And and I do. I mean, I, I love an unreliable narrator along with everybody else. And I also don't want to discount that there are women out there who have issues and, and substance problems and, th- and, and mental health crises and all of that. Like that's not to discount that, but I also don't want to make their problems and the things that they're struggling with a plot point, right. Or a device. Or trivialized. I mean, yes. to me, sometimes I think it almost trivializes it. Well, it stereotypes it, right? Like if you have a mental health problem, then then you're crazy. Like, no, that's not what that means. You know, you're not just because you just because you struggle with your mental health doesn't mean that you're unreliable. Absolutely. Right. Those two things don't go together right. more often than they do. Yeah. And I just think it kind of creates this whole rash of ideas that there are all of these people running around doing this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I just don't love that. So it's just nice to see strong women yeah. on a mission. And as you said, you know, not tearing each other down, but instead building each other up. And no spoilers with Meg. But I also like that she did develop relationships as she went along, you know, friendships that she did treasure. Yeah. I mean, I really was thinking about what would it be like for her to be on the move constantly, going from town to town, looking for her different marks. And every mark is teaching her something about what she needs to know and how she's going to ultimately come back and finish the job. And I feel like she would be lonely, right? Like, I think it would be really, really lonely and, and, and what kind of isolation she must have felt. And so I don't believe that you can go without connecting to people. And even con artists who practice con arting, con arting, is that a word? <laughs> or con artisting? I don't know what that right. would be. <laughs> uh, practicing their craft in real life. I do believe that they try to form relationships with people. I, I do think that it's self-serving. And I think that most 
con artists in the real world are, I don't know, sociopathic in, in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, you have to be in order to want to deliberately harm other people who you're trying to convince to care for you. But at the same time, you know, Meg is not quite that she's a different sort of shade of that. And I think that I would imagine her to be lonely and that she would need to connect with other people and feel bad about what she's doing, even though she thinks what she's doing is the right thing. Exactly. No, I thought that as well. Revenge is a powerful motive. Was it hard to channel the level of revenge both women were seeking? A little bit. It took me a while to hit on cats, to be honest with you. Meg's was real clear for me right from the beginning. And it helped that I wrote her in a way where she didn't really care. Like, I mean, she wasn't really worried about hurting other people. That wasn't really her intention or her focus, right? She had been harmed and traumatized in her own way to where she wasn't really able or willing to see that. Kat was a little bit different. And I really had to work hard to sort of make her feelings of revenge stick. You know, it couldn't just be about getting the story about Meg. It needed to be deeper than that. It needed to be, it needed to be more personal for her. And so I had to figure out a way to make it personal. Did you do all of that before you started writing or did you work through some of that as you wrote? I worked through a lot of it as I wrote, you know, the first draft was probably just Meg is a con artist because she wants to be and cats after her because she wants to be. And that just <laughs> doesn't make for interesting reading, really. You're like, I've got to beef it up a little bit. Well, you know, I think that anytime you're writing a book and you've got characters, I mean, my books are always very character driven. And so in order for my characters to feel real to readers, they have to be real in a lot of ways, even if they're only real on paper. They have to have whole backstories. They have to have whole lives that they've lived up until this moment when the reader is joining them. Otherwise, nothing they do and nothing they say will ring true. It will just be like, oh, well, she's just saying that or feeling that because you need her to say or feel that in this moment. And that doesn't ever really stick for readers. I think that's right. And it does sound like from talking to a variety of authors that sometimes the first draft is, is developing some of that getting some of that onto the page, understanding your characters better, their motivations, their backstories. And then you kind of come in to edit and start flushing some of these things out. Yeah. A lot of that really does happen in revision. And after you've had people reading it, um, you know, trusted readers reading it and saying like, I don't buy this, or I'm not feeling this, or this this feels contrived to me. And, And that kind of feedback is really important for a writer to have before before we send our book to our editor, even, you know, that's work an editor can do for sure. But it's, it's a much, you're in a much better position if you can get that done before your editor looks at it. Absolutely. If you've thought through some of those things and worked through them yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about the title and the cover. How did they come about? The title was a long, like it was a long time coming. I, my working title was The Long Con and I didn't really, I wasn't really feeling it. Sourcebooks loved it. And I was like, I don't love it. And so they have a whole way that they test market titles. We came up with a bunch. They test marketed them. And The Lies I Tell was the one that tested the best. And the same thing with the cover. They gave me a bunch of concepts. And I picked like the top four concepts that I that I liked. And they test marketed those. And then they came back with the concept that test marketed the best. And then they gave me eight different color combinations for that cover. And then I picked my four favorite and they test marketed those. I mean, they're very deliberate in how 
they make decisions. It's not just, oh, well, this is the one we liked the best, or this is the one the sales team liked the best. Sourcebooks is very data-driven. And so they want data to back up the decisions that they make. And it's just a really smart way that they do business. And it shows in, in the tremendous sales record that they've had over the past several years. Absolutely. And I always feel like their stories are edited well. I usually really like the covers. I just feel like they do a really good job. Yes, they do. They really do. Another author was telling me about the way they test their covers. Like they have a group of people they send it out to, maybe readers or something. It was interesting. Yeah, and and they're real they're real cagey about explaining it. It's it's proprietary information. So, they don't even tell us. They just say, "We're going to take it out to the test marketers. We'll let you know." I want to get on that list. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I want to be a test marketer for covers. I have, I, I bet I could connect you with someone. That would be great. Thank you. I'll let them know. Because I always love covers. So I'm like, hey, this is something I would love doing. <laughs> well, picking a cover is a very, um, it's a very personal thing for readers, right? Some covers trike you and other covers don't. And it's almost an intangible art where you don't really know what's going to resonate with readers. I mean, I always used to joke like publishing seems to have like a color of the year, right? That every book is teal this year. Every book is red this year. Every book is yellow this year. But I kind of think it's true a little bit, you know, and I don't know how they determine it. And I don't know how they, they sort of forecast that, but they do. But I think it's trends as well. Like recently people were posting a variety of covers that were all in that kind of watercolor look. And then there was another one where everything was just very graphically designed. And I do think there are just trends and how they come about is fascinating. And I don't know the answer to that. But it is really interesting to see that all of a sudden you'll see, you know, a whole group of covers that look very similar. Yeah, it is interesting. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's a mystery to me what works and what doesn't work and why. You just know when it does and you know when it doesn't. Exactly. But that's interesting that they really have a process where they test it. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, they do. And I don't know that other publishers don't do that. I just have never heard of them doing that. I haven't either, because the first time I'd ever heard of it was when I interviewed another source books author recently, and she mentioned it. And that's the only other time I've heard anyone mention anything like that. Yeah. I think that's what they mean by proprietary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about it, so I think I probably know the answer, but was it harder to write Meg or harder to write Cat? Hmm. Meg was definitely more fun to write, but she was a lot more work mostly because of what she was doing, trying to come up with cons that were unique, that were different, that weren't things that people had seen on TV or read in a book or had another, you know, it was all very, I had to really be creative and think about what does she need for her end goal, her big con, the one that she's coming home to Los Angeles to pull and creating smaller cons that would lead up to that. Or, you know, the same thing I said earlier, which is that, you know, the very first section we are with Meg in the past, we're seeing how, you know, her living in her car and using, you know, online dating as a way to get a hot meal is grifting, really. You know, she's not in it to find a boyfriend or a partner. She's in it because she needs a place to live. And that's sort of how it gets started for her. So she falls into conning or grifting by necessity, not because she, you know, as a young girl always decided she wanted to like take advantage of people and steal from them. And so her early cons, I had to really think through and make sure 
that they were deliberate, that she knew what she was doing and kind of realizing as she's doing them, like, I'm really good at this. And it's kind of fun because he kind of deserves it. Well, and I guess when she starts out, she really is just trying to find a place to sleep and to eat. And she's not really thinking of a larger picture and taking anybody down or leaving them without their savings or whatever it is. She's more just thinking, I've got to have a place to live. And then it sort of goes from there as she learns things. Exactly. And then she kind of sees the bigger picture and realizes that, you know, she has more power than she's ever really realized if she can figure out how to use it. And so that's what she sets off to do. She's like a modern day Robin Hood. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Female version. Yes. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking all about the lies I tell. And now I'm excited to hear what books you recommend. Mm, I just recently finished Janelle Brown's I'll Be You, which is fantastic if you're interested in childhood stars who have fallen off of their star and cults and twins. Like this book is definitely, definitely worth your time. I absolutely loved it. And then I have two upcoming books that I also really loved. Alison Winscotch's The Rewind, which is coming up soon. It's super cute. And Uh, sort of like a relationship do-over, and uh, Mary Kubica's Don't Wait Up, which her thrillers are always just page turners for me, and this one was no different. So those are the ones that I recommend. So one you can get, I'll Be You, which is on sale now, and The Rewind and Don't Wait Up are going to be available in the next six months, I think. I'll Be You has been all over Bookstagram. I mean, people are just posting right and left about it. Yes. I I am really anxious to see this book do well. I think it's well-deserved. It's one of her best. I've read everything she's written, but it's by far, I think, just one of her best books. Okay. That's good to know. And I didn't realize Mary Kubica had one coming out this year. I don't know if it's this year or next year. I want to, I don't want to, don't, don't hold me to that. <laughs> I got an early look at it and it was fantastic. So just put a pin in it and uh, I don't know, look it up. No, I always think it's great to look ahead like that. I I love it when people mention books that aren't out yet because it puts more books on my radar. Yes. Well, that's definitely one you're going to want on your radar for sure. Good. Julie, I'm so glad you joined me again on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. It was really delightful to speak with you. Thank you so much for reading. I really appreciate it. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? 
You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!